Trust Documents. So welcome uh, to our Stand, Fight, Win live stream. My name's Keith Davidson. I'm Stuart Albertson. And today we are going to be discussing trust documents. So trust documents can be the key to both enforcing a trust creator's intent and also enforcing a, a beneficiary's rights. And there's a lot that goes on within the trust document, but I think a lot of people have a lot of confusion about what did the terms mean, what did the different provisions say, and what are we looking for as lawyers when we come across the trust? And how many trusts do you think uh, you've reviewed in your career, oh, Stuart? Thousands, maybe 10,000, yeah, I don't know, it's been a lot. Thousands upon thousands, yeah. and same here. And every day it seems like we're looking at yet another trust. And of all of those trusts, if I were to line up a thousand trusts in front of you, and say we need to figure out what the rights are there is five provisions so there's this, this is going to be the top five provisions that we as lawyers immediately look at in order to determine what a person's rights are and these are these top five provisions are also things that people who create trust really should have in mind as they're creating the trust so Today we're going to be talking about the top five things that we're going to focus on anytime we get a trust document in front of us. And it's funny because you and I, I think, focus on the same things. Like if we were to name our top five things, they'd be the same thing, probably, right? right? Yep. But they might be in different order. Right. And we've discussed that before. So yes. what's the first thing that you look at when you get a trust document in front of you, Stuart? I'm very sensitive to no contest clauses. And so I generally would go to hunt down the no contest clause to see if it's under the new legislation or the old legislation. I want to know when the decedent died. So I know when to apply what type of scheme from the probate code on that. Generally, it's going to be the, the most recent uh, iteration in the probate code, but that is important for me. I want to know who the settlers are and what the no contest clause is. Okay, so you threw me a curveball there because when we talked before, you would say that one of the first things you also look at is the amendment provision. Well, you, you look to that because that'll bite you in the rear many times because right. maybe some of the surviving spouse didn't have a right to amend. And uh, for example, I will get into it, but I know the right to amendment, uh, you, you, you have some older trusts that were drafted in the 90s that say, only the, during the joint lives of the set lores can they amend the trust. Well, that's surprise, surprise to the surviving spouse when they find out, since there's no more joint lives going on here, you cannot amend this trust. Okay, so let's get into our practice pointers and we'll start by talking about amendments because the first, in most of our cases, when somebody's showing us a trust document, chances are there's been an amendment to that trust document. In a lot of cases, there's been either one amendment Whereas in some cases, there's been five or six amendments, and in some extreme cases, there's 12 and 14 amendments, which is really a nightmare. If you get into doing 12 and 14 amendments, just do a restatement and save us all a lot of trouble. But um, So let's take a look at a typical amendment provision. And so, Kayla, if you could put that up for us. And, and this is typically what you're gonna see, where the set lores acting together reserve the right to amend at any time all are part of this trust. Um, so they have the right to do that. And then on this provision, it says, upon the death of either set or the surviving spouse shall have the right acting alone to amend the trust. But there's a, a little trick in this one. If you see that last sentence, upon the death of either set or the bypass disclaimed trust in this case, um, that's what they call the bypass trust in this particular trust provision, uh, becomes irrevocable. So that means it can't be amended or changed. So this is kind of a typical amendment clause. So what is it that you're focusing on on this type of amendment clause, Stuart, if you're looking at 
an amendment, a trust amendment. Well, you're looking at what the settlors do, can do together and then what happens when the first settlor dies. The settlors are just trust creators. It's a, usually a husband and wife. We call them settlors. They create a trust. And the question is, is when can they choose to amend that trust in the future? And while they're both living, there's going to be some guidelines there about how they do that. And then nobody knows who's going to die first, so we call the first spouse to die the deceased spouse. And the surviving spouse, the, or the, the one that survives, obviously it's the surviving spouse, there's going to be some rules there. And I, I do want to, to clarify one thing you just said. When you were reading about the part on the death of either settler or the surviving spouse, you said they have a right to amend the trust. What you meant to say was they have a right to amend the survivor's trust. That's right. Yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the bottom line. I just wanted to case. clarify that that's because right. the whole point is, is we want to look at this and understand what are each person's right to amend and what portion are we talking about. And then we're getting into this concept called the survivor's trust. And then you just talked about the bypass disclaimed trust. Now I'm really confused, so maybe you can explain what how those trusts arise and what that And we're going to look at a division, how these sub we call them sub-trusts, the survivor's trust, the bypass trust. We're going to look at a provision in a minute as to how that works and, and why we even focus on that. But um, basically, when you have a married couple creating a trust, a lot of times when one spouse dies, these two new trusts come into existence, survivor's trust, bypass trust. We call them sub-trusts. We call them sub-trusts. They're two new trusts. They come into existence. Half of the assets usually go to the survivor's trust for the survivor. The other half goes to the bypass trust that represents the decedent's part of the estate. And then there's different rights depending on, on how the trusts are created. But in terms of the amendment clause, the interesting thing, I think, in my mind about the amendment clause is that you and I both will go and look at this provision, especially when we're dealing with the trust amendment, right? Right. And we're looking at it before, like, don't tell me anything else about the case. Just tell me there's a trust that was amended. And then the first thing that I want to look at is let's look at the amendment clause. Right. I don't even want to know the rest of the facts yet. Why is that? Why is this clause so vital to look at? Because they may not have the power to amend. And that's an easy win. It's an easy win, right? So the probate code says you must amend according to what the trust terms tell you to do. And keep in mind, the power to amend changes based on who's living. And so a lot of times they'll read the first sentence, set lures, and they think, well, there's, it's rare that two people that are married together ever determine that when somebody dies, I no longer control one half of the community property. They just don't see it that way. But that's what the trust might say. That's exactly what the trust might say. So now let's get into this idea of joint lives. So I'm just gonna draw this up here. So you're saying before that some of these older trusts have a provision that says it can be amended by the settlers during their joint lives. What does that mean? That means they both have to be living in order to make an amendment. And what and happens if they're not? Then there's no longer joint lives and it's an irrevocable, now that's an entirely irrevocable trust. Think the about that. Thing. Not there, there they're saying uh, you cannot amend this trust after the first to die. And I think that's such bad drafting and it was out there for so many years in these, it seemed like in the 1990s is where we see those trusts. And probably, I'll tell you, dollars to donuts, that most of these people did not intend to sign a trust that once once husband or wife passed away, the entire thing became irrevocable. So think about that. You're creating a trust, and once husband passes away, wife is there with the property, and she says, I want to change the terms of the trust. And as attorneys, we look at this, we see, well, the trust says it can be amended during the joint lives. And there's case law that says that once one person passes away, once husband passes away, there's no longer joint lives, it becomes irrevocable, you can't change it. Right. I mean, that's got to be shocking. Right. 
Yep. In fact, uh, you know, this was one of our first appeals we had when we first firmed our, our firm, and we were on the good side of this appeal. The trial court had actually ruled that joint lives meant the husband and wife must both be living if there was to be an amendment. Mm -hmm. And that benefited us because somebody made an amendment after the husband died. Right. And so we were able to undo that amendment, invalidate it essentially, because the joint lives were not there. Well, the trial court made that finding. We go up on the Court of Appeal. I can't believe it went all the way to oral argument. We argued. It wasn't even a hard argument to make. They, in fact, the three panel of justices didn't ask me one question. Right. The reason they didn't ask me one question is because joint lives means joint lives. It was a very simple analysis. Yeah. And so after that, when, when, when husband dies, wife's alive, there's no longer joint lives, can't be changed. Right. Boom. Period. Yep. Done. But again, I'll bet you again that most people in that category did not go into that knowingly signing a document thinking that if once their husband or wife passed away and they're left behind, that they would have no power to change that trust. Well, and that's what's so important, I think, on these cases is that the reason we look at these provisions is because they matter. And we, if, if somebody's trying to amend a trust that can't be amended because it's become irrevocable, that's an easy win. That's an easy legal argument for us to make. So if you're creating a trust, it matters what the amendment provision says, right? It does, and, and think and we had another case where there was an amendment that said that the husband and wife, the settlers acting together, and by both of their signatures can amend this trust. Okay, so subsequent to that, a new attorney comes into the picture and dad has Alzheimer's and really can't function. He's there sitting with the lawyer, but the lawyer goes, he's got Alzheimer's and only secures one signature to amend the trust. This is the lawyer that did not draft the original trust, probably didn't take time to really read this amendment provision all that carefully and only got mom to sign and it transferred a significant amount to someone else. But the trust required two signatures. Two signatures, and again, one. that was a simple case. Right. And once dad died, guess what? You can't get two signatures, and you can't make this transfer that mom and likely dad was intending, and the lawyer just messed up. So there's two lessons there if you're creating a trust. If you're the, per you're the set lawyer creating this trust, number one, pay attention to this amendment provision because it's gonna have implications in the future. And number two, if you are amending your trust, Take a look at it again, because you, if you're going to amend, do it the right way. That's right. According to what the trust terms say, because the trust terms are going to matter. That's right. Now, f let's flip that around to the beneficiaries. If you're a beneficiary of a trust, and let's say that you're a beneficiary of a trust where you're getting you know, half the trust estate, and let's say it is one of these joint lives ones, so husband dies, and for some reason mom wants to reduce your share from 50% down to 10%, and so she signs an amendment. And, and then you know you bring it to us and you say, what are my rights as a beneficiary? Could mom do this? If it was a joint lives trust and dad's already dead and mom does an amendment, changing my share from 50% to 10%, could she do that? More than likely, no. That's an invalid amendment because she's making a change after somebody's passed away and there's no longer a joint lives that's going forward. So now it increased my rights as a beneficiary. Correct because it limits the settlor's right to even change the terms. And I'll tell you, the, the, probably the, the reason that this joint lives language, which has disappeared from the newer drafting. Right. Uh, when you see trusts that are post-2000, you don't see this too often in the boilerplate language, but you can see why when you have a blended family, perhaps, and neither spouse wants to trust the other spouse with making sure that 
uh, in a blended marriage with blended kids and so forth, you want to make sure that your wishes are fulfilled. Right. And nobody knows who's going to die first. Right. But it's a draconian provision, I think, because again, most spouses, spices, whatever you call people that are married, <laughs> the plural of spouses, yeah, they're spices. They don't realize that they're giving up, and and I'll tell you, even even in a case where there's a, a mandatory sub trust funding, where we're going to get into the survivors portion and the bypass portion, most spouses don't understand that 50% of that goes away. So so the joint lives one, 100% of control goes away. Under the mandatory sub trust funding, 50% goes away, and then there are those cases where some spouses they've been in a 50-year marriage together and they say everything i own goes to the surviving spouse and the surviving spouse can choose to do whatever they want with it right well the key there is that joint it's okay to use joint lies if you know what you're doing yes if, if, if two spices as you say yeah. two spouses come together and they say this is how we want it to be handled then fine use that term the problem i think you're pointing out is so many people use these terms <coughs> having no clue what they meant that's or what right. the ramifications of them would be. That's right. So let's move on to revocation because amendment and revocation kind of go hand in hand. And let's take a look at this revocation provision. And uh, you'll see it's a little bit longer, but essentially it says that each of the settlers reserves the right to revoke at any time the trust agreement. And um, if it is revoked during the settlor's joint lifetime, so here we do have a joint lifetime issue, the trustor shall immediately deliver to them the entire trust estate. And then upon revocation, the property is transferred to the settlers as their community property, or if it's separate property, then it goes to whoever owns the separate property. And then upon the death of either settlor, the surviving spouse shall have the right acting alone to revoke the survivor's trust. But again, the bypass trust in this example becomes irrevocable. So the revocation clause in this scenario is similar to the amendment clause we looked at earlier in the sense that it does use joint lifetimes but it also then says once one spouse dies this is what's going to happen so then the surviving will have the right to revoke the survivor's trust but not the bypass trust correct okay yep so again why are we looking at this revocation clause as soon as i hand you a trust where i say there's a revocation somebody revoked the trust and here's the trust one of the first things you're going to do is look at the revocation. Clause. We want to see if they follow the terms to revoke properly. And and I'll tell you, the one that gets tripped up here quite often is delivery of the revocation to the trustee, right? There's a requirement that that happens here. And if that doesn't happen and you can't prove that, then revocation was not followed properly. That's a really important point. So what does that even mean, delivery to the trustee? Well, if the trustee is the one, if the, if the set lord, the people that created the trust are also the trustee and they're the ones revoking, delivery is presumed to take place because they're one and the same. But many times there are tr independent trustees, friends that are trustees, family members that are trustees. And if the set lord does not deliver that uh, revocation, then it does not complete the revocation of that trust. So again, you didn't follow the trust terms, and if you don't follow the trust terms, it's not going to be a valid revocation. That's right. So what we're looking at here is, is trust provisions that are gonna set the tone for what the rights are for the trust beneficiaries before we even know any of the other facts. Like, don't even tell me about undue influence yet. Let's just see if they complied with the formalities of the document itself. That's right. So that amendment and revocation go hand in hand. And revocation can also have that, this one even had that joint lives provision. Of course, they fixed that issue by having a second sentence or a number of sentences dealing with what happens after one spouse dies. But if they had stopped 
Let's say this revocation provision, Caleb, you can just put the revocation provision back up for a second. So let's say it didn't talk about upon the death of either set lore. So that's a, a little over halfway down the paragraph. Let's say it just said it can be revoked in whole or in part during the set lore's joint lifetimes, and that's where it stopped. Um, what would your analysis be there? Again, it would be during their joint lifetimes that you would have to have the revocation take place during that time period. And once one of the spouses died, it can no longer be revoked. So it can't be, and if, it, if the amendment clause said the same thing, that means it can't be changed, can't be amended, can't be revoked, you're stuck with it. That's this correct. Is what, this is what you're living with. Right. So. so, okay, so that goes through the amendment and revocation provision, and those are very important provisions that both set lawyers and beneficiaries need to be aware of. Let's get into this idea of the difference between the survivor's trust and the bypass trust. What is this, these sub-trusts that we're talking about? And let's take a look at our division of trust estate. So we have a provision here, and it's a little bit of a longer one, although this is a simple version of the division of the trust estate. And what we're saying essentially is upon the death of the deceased spouse, the trustees shall divide the remaining trust estate, including any uh, additions to the trust estate that come in because somebody passed away, into two separate shares. And if you notice on the second line, it says, it says the trustees shall divide. So this becomes a mandatory provision. And under sub A, the trustees shall allocate to the surviving spouse's share, the surviving spouse's separate property, and the portion of the uh, estate deemed to be the survivor's one half of the community property. And then the trustees shall allocate to the deceased spouse's share, the deceased spouse's separate property, if any, and the remaining trust estate that's not allocated to the surviving spouse's share. So what that means is the survivor's trust is going to get one half of the trust estate and the deceased spouse's share is going to get the other half of the trust estate. Because most of these cases are community property, right? So community property means each spouse owns half. So half goes here, half goes there. So, okay, that's what the provision says. What does that mean? in terms of real life application. So do you wanna walk us through what you- Well, what I did is, I, I don't know how well this shows up on the screen, but you've got the original trust up here, and then you have one spouse pass away. And so you're gonna take all the assets, the house, the cash, the retirement accounts, possibly if you're assigned to the trust, and you're gonna take, you're gonna figure out the character of that property. Is it all community property, or is there some separate property? So let's say there's a little bit of separate property for the deceiving the, the C spouse and a little bit of separate property for the survivor spouse. What you're gonna do is you're gonna take the community property and split it in half. Somehow, some way, it doesn't have to be in kind. You can you can do it. You can mix and match you assets. You can mix and match assets, but the idea is 50% of the community is gonna come to this locked bypass trust. It's an irrevocable bypass trust. The other 50% of the community property goes to the survivor's trust. 100% of the surviving spouse's separate property comes to the survivor spouse, surviving trust and 100% of the separate property of the deceased spouse comes to the bypass trust. So once you get those trusts in place, then the survivor can still do anything they want pretty much to this trust over here, but they're no longer able to affect this property here in the bypass trust. Okay, so let's kill off husband first, because typically the husband's the first to die, right? So let's say husband's the, the first one to pass away. So his share is going to be into the bypass trust. Just put a line right through husband. Let's just kill him off. There we go. And then we have wife. Of course, she's going to live much longer. And wife, is, her share of the assets are going to go to the survivor's trust. That's right. And let's say there's $2 million and it's 
100% community property, then we're going to actually have 1 million come into the Survivors Trust, and 1 million is going to go into the Bypass Trust. That's correct. Now, the interesting part about this is, first of all, the provision that we were looking at earlier, it used the term shall. So the trustee shall uh, divide the remaining trust estate into two shares. So in our world of trusts and estates, when you see shall, that's a mandatory provision. This must happen. That's right. Right? So what do you think wife is thinking when husband dies? She goes in to talk to her trust attorney and he or, or she says, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, the wife is never happy about this outcome. Yeah, and, and I won't say the wife, I mean the surviving spouse, whether it's a right. wife or a husband, they're never happy about giving up 50% of their community property interest to a trust that they have no access to other than, just to throw a little complication into this, there is some rights to the income that's earned off this trust that will come over to the survivor's trust, but the principle, the, the corpus of this trust right here is not available to the surviving spouse except in some dire circumstances. Okay. So the surviving spouse can get to some of this, but really it's, it's inaccessible to them. Correct. And I think that's the kind of the surprising part. Now, if you look at this from a beneficiary standpoint, so one of the kids down here, what is the benefit of, of husband's share going to bypass? Well, trust? the huge benefit is where husband and wife both have different children from different marriages or different relationships. And so husband knows that he didn't know he was going to die first, but now because he has died, his kids know that one half of his value of his community property is ultimately going to come out to them if, if he chose them as his beneficiaries, which we're going to presume he did. Yeah. They're going to be safeguarded and they're going to get the bypass. And then if mom, the wife here who doesn't maybe have a good relationship with these kids, she gets mad at them. Well, she can do whatever she wants with her portion of the survivor trust. She can give it to her children and she feels good about that. So now everyone's, everyone's a little bit unhappy, but mostly happy because both sets of families are getting assets at the end of the day. So these mi mandatory bypass trusts may not be favorable for the surviving spouse, but it's great for the kids it because is. now you've locked this in. And once this is locked into the children, the surviving spouse can't direct at least this half of the estate away from the children. You can do whatever you want over here, but not over there. That's such an important, that's a key ingredient. And it's something that for me, that one of the first things I look at when I get a trust in front of me is, was there a subtrust set up? And if so, was it mandatory? Because once I know that, then I know if I'm talking to a child, I know that that child has some rights and that those rights are gonna be something that are gonna be easier to enforce That's because right. they're mandatory. That's right. Now, if I'm talking to a surviving spouse, I also wanna look at that division because once I see that, I'm gonna know, oh, surviving spouse, you're giving up control of about half of this estate, and I know you don't like that, but at least I can be clued into that. A lot of times we're talking to children, though, and children always want to know, what are my rights? My, husband, my dad died, his wife is still alive, not my mother, what are my rights? Well, if you, it, it all comes down to whether there were subtrusts, right? That's right. So what happens if there wasn't? What happens if the bypass trust wasn't mandatory? The language is the trustee may fund a, bus, a bypass trust, but it's not required that sort of language, and let's say 100%, so let's say all two million goes over here into the survivor's trust. Then in this scenario, in this example, wife can do anything she wants with that $2 million, and I would suggest that husband's kids treat her really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He better be really nice to stepmom because she now has the power to change this 
totally and completely. That's right. And so that's the difference. So before I know anything else about a case, if I can look at the trust document and I can determine whether there's a subtrust mandatory or not, right there I know how good the rights of the children are. They're either very good or they're not so good. That's right. Based on these subtrusts. Right. And that's why the subtrusts are so important. One other thing I want to point out. We put bypass trust up here. Um, there's a lot of other names that trusts use for a bypass trust. It's still a bypass trust, but sometimes you'll see it called an exemption trust or a family trust or a marital trust, even though it's not technically a Q-tip trust, they'll still call it a marital trust. Um, there's a lot of different names for this for some reason. Survivor's trusts are almost always survivor's trusts. Right. It's very rarely not a survivor's trust. Right. Although I've seen some where they say trust A, trust B. Right. Okay. It's the same concept though. Anytime you have a trust that's segregating out some of the estate and locking it away so it's irrevocable. And so now what we're doing is we're taking the amendment and revocation clauses. So we knew when we looked at the amendment and revocation clauses, it specifically said the surviving spouse could amend this but not the bypass and could revoke this but not the bypass. And now we're seeing that the bypass was a mandatory trust that had to be created, it had to be funded. Now we're getting somewhere in terms of advising the child that, hey, you've got some rights here. Right. Whereas if we didn't see those things, then we would say it's not looking so good. Is there any other thoughts you want to share on the subtrusts? The, the only one I would say is there's a, a, every once in a while you'll run across one of these trusts that says disclaimer trust. And all that means is that that the surviving spouse, if they choose to, they can disclaim some of the property, which will then create a bypass trust, essentially. And I asked, uh, well, I asked when I did a lot of estate planning years ago, I used to ask people in trust administration, how often would a surviving wife or a surviving husband disclaim assets into a bypass trust, even if there was a taxable reason to do so, and it was zero. <laughs> yeah. So, and that show, right. goes to show you that surviving spouses just don't view the idea of locking away half of their property in a trust, the they want to control life, yeah. those assets until they pass away. Yeah, and, and in my mind, there's really only two reasons to do a bypass trust. One is for estate tax planning, although now that's less the case that's because right. the estate tax exclusion is over $11 million per person. Mm -hmm. There was a time when I first started when the estate tax exclusion was only 600000 per person. Well, then you needed a bypass trust to escape estate tax. Now you don't. The second reason you have a bypass trust is control. This is the hand beyond the grave issue, right? So by creating this mandatory bypass trust, the husband can exert control and force that money to be preserved for his children. That's right. That's the control issue. So if you are interested in having that control, you definitely need to use a bypass trust. And if you're not concerned about that control, then maybe you shouldn't use one. Right. Again, a couple that's married for 60 years and has four or five kids together and they, you know, the history just goes forever in that family, chances are you can let the surviving spouse end up with everything Right. Uh, if you're an estate planner. Right. Uh, but if you have a, a situation where husband is 60 years old and wife is 25 yeah. uh, and maybe they have a new baby together or something like that and he's got some kids from three or four previous marriages, you better have a bypass trust in that case. Right, okay, so when you have a mandatory bypass trust, it's good for the ultimate heirs. Let's talk about what this does to the spouse though. So what, a lot, because a lot of times the surviving spouse, the wife in this case, is gonna be the trustee of this bypass trust. So what does that obligate her to do now? Well, she's got the same fiduciary obligations that any trustee has, and that means she has to make these assets productive. She has to, she can't just put them in a bank account that has no interest bearing on it. 
Uh, she can't come raid these assets for her own use. So she's got the same rules that any other trustee in the state of California has in administering a trust. For the benefit, ultimately, of the children who may not be her children. That's correct. I mean, that's the important part, too. And I, again, I, I think if the spouses went into this eyes wide open and they understand that, look, you can do this, but when you do this, spouse is taking on considerable fiduciary obligations. Now, it could be that you have somebody else be trustee of the bypass trust, a professional trustee or something, right. so that spouse isn't taking on those obligations. Right. But you're going to create a situation where the wife is going to be trustee of this trust, and ultimately it's going to go to children who may not be hers, and you can already see that you're building up a natural conflict between this group of beneficiaries and this beneficiary because they're going to be at odds with one another. Because the more that she manages this properly and the less money that wife takes from this bypass trust, the more for the kids. Well, you're building up cross purposes there. That's right. right. So it, yeah. it can be dangerous. Keep in mind one thing that we haven't talked about is that most trusts will say that surviving spouse has to use her assets over here in the survivor's trust before she can invade and start using the assets in the bypass trust. But some, we've seen many bypass trusts where certainly the income comes over at least annually, maybe even more than that. So if this earns $100,000 worth of income during the year, that all comes to the surviving, trust, surviving spouse's trust. Also, she can sometimes have what we call a HEM standard. So explain how a HEM standard works. So that's where the surviving spouse has a right to invade the principal of this trust for if she needs anything for her health education, maintenance, and support. Right. So that means like rent, groceries, you know, you want to go back to school, get medical bills. more training, medical bills. Hospitalization. Hospitalization, uh, long-term care. You can't use it, however, to make gifts or just go on vacation or give away Ferraris or something. You can't use it for any of those purposes. But you said something that was really important too, is that a lot of these trusts do say that the wife has to exhaust all of these assets before she can invade the principal over here. That's right. I mean, that's great for the children. Yep. I mean, that really builds up their rights. And so if I'm advising a child, I'm saying, hey, your rights are even better now. Right. But man, is that a burden for the spouse, isn't it? It is, especially because where do we normally, we end up putting cash with the surviving trust, right? With trust administrators, they normally will try to give as much cash as possible to surviving trust. Right. And of course, then she's going to continue to live in the home, right? But right. then they'll put the home over here, right? Right. So... So then if you want to sell the home, you have to think about your fiduciary duties and, and That's everything right. else. So it, yeah. it can get complicated. But if you're a beneficiary, having these subtrust setups is nice because it protects your rights better than it does without it. That's right. If you're a spouse, it can become problematic. So you really have to put a lot of thought into that. Uh, let's talk about distribution. So we have a distribution stand, uh, section here. So ultimately, Every trust, whether it has these sub-trusts, bypass trusts, survivor's trusts, the surviving spouse is going to pass away eventually. And these trusts have to be distributed. And that's where we get into these distribution clauses. So this particular one is fairly simple. It says, all property in the trust and any property added to the trust um, shall be divided by right of representation into separate trust shares, Run one share for each children then living, and one share for the living issue of a deceased child. So let's talk a little bit about what does that mean? Because I think that's a pretty standard provision, right? We see that in a lot of in a lot of trusts. And after we're done looking at the amendment clauses and the subtrust division clauses, the next thing that I want to know is, well, who receives the distribution once both spouses are deceased, and how does that money come out? 
Is it outright? Is it in further trust? What are the rights of these beneficiaries? So let's talk about kind of how that works. So if you have a trust up here, and let's just say that you have a survivor's trust and a bypass trust. So this is the survivor's, this is the bypass trust. Now it's gonna come out to the children under this clause. So if you look around, you're gonna look at how many children do the settlers have that are then living? So how does that work versus this other section here that says something about this, the, the deceased children? So let's say that there were three children of the marriage and one predeceased, one child died, say, 20 years ago. Okay, so you have child one, child two, and child three, but, but this child is predeceased. Yeah, died before mom and dad. Okay. But that child, before they died, they had two children themselves. So these are going to be grandkids. Yes. Okay. So how are we going to divide this estate with this provision? So it says an equal share for each one of the then living children, and then an equal share for any of the children who passed away. So the then living children these people are going to get a third and this third that would norm that would have gone to this child instead is going to go down to here one sixth each so they'll each get one sixth the interesting thing about this language is that this is going to be the result of this language even if this trust had been created before this child predeceased right so a lot of times people say well you know my brother passed away but the trust was never updated well with this language, that's okay, because it, it kind of anticipated that. Right. And so it says we're going to divide it among the children then living, or we're going to divide it among the children who are the issue of the child who predeceased. That's what the language says. And let's take a look at the language one more time, where it says it's going to be divided by right of representation to separate trust shares. That's the second line down. One trust share for each of the settlers' children then living, and one trust share collectively for the living issue of any deceased child of the settlers. So that's what we're getting at when we're looking at this diagram, is this is the deceased child of the settlor, so that share is going to just pass down to the grandkids. Now the question becomes, how does it pass out? So now that we know what the shares are, do we know if it's going to be in trust or outright, which this language doesn't answer that question, but what are some of the different options that we see sometimes, Stuart, on this stuff? Well, you might want to have minors. You, uh, there may be provisions that if there's somebody's younger or doesn't have the you know the ability to make good decisions with money yet, that that's going to be in trust until a certain age. And then there's some mile markers where maybe they turn 25 or they can get half the trust. They turn 30, they get the balance. This is all things that you're controlling from the grave. It, you, you, there's many different ways you can do this. You can either do an outright distribution to somebody 18, which is not a good idea if it's millions of dollars, or you can put these mile markers in to make sure they're making good decisions. You can give the trustee a lot of discretion. Like, uh, for example, if I made you the trustee of my trust, my son, Chris, I want you to be able to manage Chris. If I died and Chris is 15 years old, I don't want him getting all $100,000 of my net worth. Uh, I want you to give that to him when he's 25 and he's making good decisions. Right, but you can the trustee can still uh, make payments for that beneficiary's education or health or whatever. It's not a it's not an all or nothing proposition. It's not as if the money's locked away and the beneficiary can't access it at all. You can allow the beneficiary to get at some of the assets for certain purposes. That's right. And if my net worth of a hundred thousand dollars was there, I would have that paid for the first semester at Harvard, 
And then he takes student loans after <laughs> yeah, that. That's right. I'm not even sure that covers the first <laughs> semester anymore. I have no idea. Um, but when I'm looking at a trust document and I'm going to the distribution provisions, I'm looking for two things. One is what share does the person I'm talking to receive out of the trust? That's right. Number two, there's two ways to distribute assets to beneficiary, either outright or in a further trust. Now you're talking about in a further trust where they you know, reach a certain age, maybe it comes out. Uh, some trusts for children stay in trust their entire lives. Sometimes there are these special needs trusts, you know, where it only allows distributions on a very limited basis. What's the difference in your mind between an outright distribution and an in-trust distribution of any kind when you're talking to a child down here and they're asking your advice about their rights? Well, the outright distribution is much more valuable, obviously, because you have a right to actual cash or assets immediately or fairly soon once the trust administration is complete. If it's in trust, a discretionary trust where the trustee has all the power, that's where you want to have a good relationship with the trustee going forward. Yeah, and so the outright distribution is such a more powerful uh, arrangement because if you're entitled to something now, there's a lot we can do to put pressure on the trustee to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's a lot of cases where uh, the parent dies and you know there's a house let's say and for some reason one whoever's the trustee is usually a sibling they don't want to sell the house they want to live in it but the trust requires outright distribution of, of the of the trust property which is the house which means you either have to buy the beneficiaries out or you have to sell the house and distribute the proceeds so on outright distribution we can force that to happen and we can force it to happen fairly quickly that's true Whereas in an in-trust distribution where it's going to be held in trust until a certain age or for the rest of your life or something like that, now our hands start to get tied in terms of what we can do to help that beneficiary. So when it comes to the beneficiary side, if you have an outright distribution, you have stronger rights. When it comes to the settlor side, the person creating these trusts, you kind of should think about what restrictions do you want to put on your beneficiaries and what restrictions do you not want to put on your beneficiaries. So in the case of your son, you don't want him getting money when he's 18, but would you want to leave it in trust for his lifetime? No. Why not? Because I know at some point, in this just a personal opinion, once somebody reaches 25, they're either good or bad. So I figure that's that's the best I'm going to do is get him to 25, get him the money. If he's a good person, great. If he's a bad person, well, he'll enjoy it for a few years and then move so on. Move on, right? Yeah. So, I mean, at some point, I think you really have to make up your minds. I think that this is another uh, area, though, where a lot of times people enter into these trusts not fully understanding the ramifications of what they're doing. So, let's say that you did leave the, the money in trust for your son for his lifetime. And let's say he could only use it for medical uh, expenses. And that's the only reason he could access it. And let's say over time it starts to build up and you, you start to get a pretty big pile of money in there and he wants help buying a house. You know, can, he, can he use it to buy a house? Generally, no, although there's some petitions you can file if the trustee's agreeable to modify the trust terms. But generally, as the, as the trust is drafted, if it's just for medical expenditures, then no, you're not gonna be able to use that excess money for any other expenditures. And this is the problem with these long-term trusts, is that you can sit here today and say, well, I want my child to have this property for these purposes, but 10, 20, 30 years from now, that could all change. And now you've locked everything in so tight that the beneficiary can't get what they need in order to help them out in life. And that's the whole reason you left them this trust to begin with, I would presume, that's is right. to help the beneficiaries out in life. Why else leave it? Right. If you don't want to help the beneficiary, just give it all to charity. Right. Like, why even leave it to the kids, right? right. 
which you could do. But um, that's the one of the problems with these trusts for children that go on indefinitely or for very long periods of time is you can run into some real problems with that. On the flip side, people are worried about giving kids money because what are they what are they worried about? They're going to blow it, right? They're going to gamble it. They're not good with money. They're going to mismanage it. And I think at some point you kind of have to pick your poison, like you said, like by age 25, age 30, either this person's going to manage money well or they're not, so be it. That's right. So what are you going to do? Right. So, so that's, the distribution provision is one of the most important ones that we look at just because it, it, it really has such a huge effect on what a beneficiary rights is ultimately going to be. So do we have a question, Kayla? We do have a question from Facebook. Does the decedent beneficiary's spouse enter into the equation? So the question is, if a beneficiary passes away, does their share go to their spouse? Do you want me to, you got that? Yeah, you know, you can take a shot at that. I mean, I know the answer, but go ahead, <laughs> why don't you take a shot at it? Let's see, I'm gonna test you today. Okay, good. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, the answer. the answer's no. Thank you for beating me to the punch. Probably not. And the reason for that is, think about the language we looked at on the distribution clause, where it says that we're gonna create one share for each living child and one share for the issue of a predeceased child. What does issue mean? Issue, issue means children. Yeah, issue does not mean wives. It does not mean spouses. And so the only way that a spouse of a predeceased beneficiary is gonna receive something is if the trust says that. Or, or if, the settlers have both passed away, and there's gonna be a three-way split between three living children, and then child three passes away with their own estate plan, because they've already vested, because they were living at the time that their parents passed away, but the trust distribution hadn't occurred yet. So they survived the parents, yes. so it's not a predeceased situation. That's right, and they have their own trust that gives to their spouse. Right. Well, now their share will come down there and then go to their spouse. Okay, so if you have a child who doesn't predecease but dies after the parents but before distribution, the spouse might take. That's correct. Or if you have a trust where the trust terms actually say that it goes to the child's spouse. Which is rare. You do see that from time to time, but that's very rare drafting. Very rare. Yes. I would say probably 5% of the trusts Maybe have less, yeah. although I've, se I've certainly seen it. Yep. I've seen a fair share of it, but very, very rare. And the problem is, is that the standard language, look at the standard language. Let's go back to the distribution clause for a minute. But the standard language, if you look at the last, set, uh, the last line of this paragraph is for the living issue of a deceased child. That's the problem. Issue means children. It does not mean spouses. Right. And so that's ultimately going to be the answer is a, a big no. Right. Yep. So was I right? You were right. Okay. It's, it's but you were right first because yes. you answered the question. Well, I right. guess I had a 50% chance. That's true. 50-50. <laughs> you looked right. <laughs> as long as you look right, what does it matter? Uh, okay. So let's go on to the fifth issue that we want to talk about today, and that is no contest clauses. Yay. This, is the, this is the big daddy of them all, right? Yay. All right, so this is a long provision. I'm not gonna sit here and read this provision because it's long, but if you want, and you're watching this on the recorded version after the live is done, you can pause this screen and you can read it to your heart's content. But here's the bottom line of this provision, and that is, if you contest the trust and the validity of the trust, you are risking losing everything. That's the no contest clause. So in the olden days, they used to be called interrogum clause, which is Latin for to scare the pants off of your children. 
loose translation, and it, uh, <laughs> and that's that's what it was uh, meant to do is to prevent people from contesting the trust. So, what is the issue that you are most concerned about on no contest clauses? Because this is one of the clauses that you said that you look for almost right up front. Well, well, first, before I I talk about no contest clauses, I just want to say that to prospective clients out there. As much as I care about you and like you and love you, I don't need you to call me and explain to me how no contest clauses work in California <laughs> because I've actually dealt with them before. But this is how, this many, is, how many times have you dealt with no contest clauses? Uh, may, a few times. A thousand? Um, Couple this, thousand? Is, this is one of those things where people, you know, people really get caught up. If, if you asked, I, if you took a poll of people that, did, that weren't lawyers and didn't do trust administration or litigation and ask them, can you think of any type of a clause you can think of from a trust, they're going to think no contest clause because that's the whole, I can give you a dollar if you challenge this. I mean, this has been around, I remember as a kid sitting around the table when I was young, my aunt saying in her will, it gave a dollar to anybody that contested what she wanted to do. So no contest clauses are out there, but let me bring some simplicity to no contest clauses in California. And that is, they are no longer enforceable. Okay, there's a general rule, no contest clauses are no longer enforceable, except in one of three, <laughs> except in one that's, of three cases. You should have said but, and then I could have said that that's a big but. Okay. So, um, and, and so there's just three baskets, if you will, where no contest clauses still apply in California. And probably if you're gonna be challenging a trust, you're gonna be triggering one of those baskets. Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. And we, so, we, we don't ever actually know until the end of the case. That's true. And we, and we used to have in California what we called a safe harbor application that we could file with the court and ask them, hey, if we filed this trust contest, would we trigger the no contest uh, clause, clause in the trust and actually lose our inheritance? And the courts got so overwhelmed with those filings, they yeah. took it out of the legislation. So we can't do safe harbors anymore. But so just go with my general rule that they're not allowed for the most part, but they're allowed in three baskets. The first basket, Keith, is a direct contest. Right. Second basket is if you challenge the transfer of property to a trust, if a, you challenge the settlor's ability to transfer property. And the third is if you file a, pro, a creditor's claim against the, uh, the settlors. So let's talk about each one of these, and I'm gonna ask you to, to walk through these because I think you do a better job than I do at describing them. Um, number one is a direct contest that is brought without probable cause. That's a mouthful. But generally, this is, the, this is the primary reason we see trust contests filed. And that is, you as a beneficiary are saying, I want to challenge the amendment to this trust or the creation of this trust because there was undue influence or lack of capacity exercised over my parents or parent. And they you know, wrote me out of the will and they didn't mean to do that because they didn't have the ability to do that. So I want to challenge, and that's going to be what we call a direct contest with probable cause. What does that mean? Well, that's when you're going to try to set aside a document based on lack of capacity undue influence, and you are going to directly try to say that either the trust or an amendment should be disregarded as being invalid. And so that's a direct contest. So you're directly attacking either the document as a whole or some portion of the document, and you're trying to get the court to say it's not a valid document. It's not a valid piece of this trust plan. And you agree with me that uh, directly challenging a trust based on undue influence or lack of capacity, that's going to be a direct contest? Every time. Okay. And then it says here, though, the no contest clause will be used against you if you do a direct contest without probable cause. What does that mean? Okay. So this is the big out clause. This is the big, the big but 
So you will be disinherited for a direct contest unless and except you have probable cause to file your action. And that is you have to have some reasonable basis to believe that if you file, you have a chance of succeeding. And so you have to have some reasonable basis to succeed. Now here's the problem. You only have 120 days after you're given notice to file a trust contest. You don't have enough time in 120 days to learn anything. That's right. You either know stuff or you don't, or you suspect stuff or you don't. There's not enough time in 120 days to file a lawsuit, do discovery, issue subpoenas. I mean, shoot, even if I filed on day one, I wouldn't get a subpoena back within 120 days, probably, right. because medical institutions are paying in the rear trying right. to get documents. And besides, I have to file the lawsuit first before I can even issue the subpoena. And if I go to the wrongdoer and say, hey, give me these documents, give me the medical records, whatever, they're going to say no. <laughs> and so what do I know? Well, let me give you, let me give you just a short hypothetical. And, th and there's all kinds of different uh, facts that arise out of this. But let's say that you have four, you have the original trust and four amendments. And under the original trust and four amendments, you're to receive $1 million every single time. And then three months before your mom passed away, she created a final amendment and you receive zero. Right. Would that be enough to raise probable cause? Possibly yes. I mean, there's no, there's no black or white answer to that, but probably yes. Now let's layer in a few more facts. I know that mom was suffering dementia. I know that she had short-term memory loss. I know that she couldn't remember my name half the time in the last six months before her passing. I, didn't, I don't have access to her medical records, but I was around her enough to know that she was suffering. And let's say six months before her death, I also know that she had a stroke. Now, once you layer in those facts, now I think probable cause becomes even stronger. That's right. Because it's, it's a strong suspicion that I might be right. Right. The problem is we don't know until I file the lawsuit, go through the lawsuit. If I win, it's not an issue. If I lose, then somebody's going to bring a petition to disinherit me and then the court has to decide. And so we won't know with 100% certainty if I'm right about probable cause or not until the very end of the case. And that's what's so uh, painful about these decisions is that we can't tell a client with any amount of certainty that yes, you have probable cause or no, you don't. We can say, it looks like you have facts that would lead me to believe you have probable cause, but will a court agree with that? I don't know. Uh, but I will tell you this, is that in our experience, a vast majority of judges do not want to disinherit beneficiaries if they don't have to. And so what probable cause ends up being is a, it, it gives the judge permission to give you a get out of jail free card. And most of the time, a vast majority of the time, judges are gonna do that because they don't want to see that harsh of a result because you already lost. You contested a trust and you lost and so they don't necessarily want to add insult to injury by also disinheriting you from whatever else you may be getting. Now, if you're not getting anything, if I went from a million to zero, well, that's easy. Of course I'm going to contest. You're going to file the trust contest because right. you have nothing to lose. Which brings us to another issue of if you're going to create a no contest clause, how do you want to structure it to give it some teeth? There, you would, if you truly are a settlor, a parent, and you, you're really disappointed in your third child and you want to disinherit them, give them 200 or 300 or $400,000 of a $5 million estate, and now they have to risk that if they challenge the trust. Something substantial that they have to lose. So if I was gonna get a million, and then in the last trust amendment, it was cut down to $750,000, would I contest? Absolutely not. It's not worth the risk. No. Would I, would I risk losing 750,000 to go for an extra 250,000? No. 
And that's a case that you and I probably wouldn't even take because even if the client wanted to do it, because the risk is just too great. It is. There's no payoff for that. Right. But what if my gift went from a million to $25,000? I'd be willing to wager $25,000 to come after a million dollars, especially with the facts that you just outlined. Right. I think those are good facts, and I think that there will be a positive settlement in that case. Yeah, and so that's a personal decision. I have to decide if I'm willing to risk losing 25000 but if I am, it's a, it's a probably a pretty good risk, and right. I think I would risk that. That's right. In that scenario. So um, let's talk about, so that's direct contest. What's the next one that we have here? Well, let's talk about, um, we don't see this that often, but if somebody files a pleading, and keep in mind, a pleading means something that you file affirmatively with the court or anything you file to oppose somebody else's pleading that they filed with the court. Any filing with the court, you should be thinking, is there no contest clause? Is it gonna apply? But if you challenge the transfer of the, pro of the property into the trust on the grounds that the settlor did not have an ownership in that property or didn't have authority to transfer that property to their trust. So and go ahead. This is interesting because this is where you say the trust terms can't control the house because when dad, dad never owned it when he transferred it in in the first place. That's and right. Therefore, the trust shouldn't control. That's right. And so what's interesting about this prong is it that the, the next two prongs that we have here, ownership and creditor's claim, they do not have the probable cause exception. And so if you file, in my opinion, as a lawyer, once you file, you have triggered the no contest clause. You're just done. You're done. Now. There, you got to remember they call this an election because you have two legal theories to get the house, right? The first legal theory you just screwed up on because you filed a pleading saying mom or dad didn't have the ability to transfer this because they didn't own it. You just you're not going to get under the trust any longer because you violated the, the trust no contest clause. But if you can prove they truly didn't have ownership of that property to transfer it, then you might win. Then you might win, but that has nothing to do with the trust itself. That's just saying they didn't have the ability to move this asset into the trust. That's just real property law. Correct. So you can either take under the trust, as the trust terms are. If you don't like that, then you can challenge this ownership issue. But once you challenge the ownership issue and lose, you're not going to get under the trust. That's correct. I mean, that, that seems like a harsh result, but that's what the state of the law is. And I'm not sure what the you know legislature was thinking. They may have been thinking or not. I don't know. But they clearly give probable cause exception. They put a lot of thought into the first prong of direct contest where they're going to say, hey, if you do this reasonably, we're going to give the judge an out. But if you file and say mom and dad didn't have ownership to do this, you're done. You're done under the trust. You're not getting. Right. And then the third option here is simply filing a creditor's claim saying that mom or dad owes me some money and they should have paid me you're going to be done there too because there's no exception for probable cause there either. And once you file it, I think you're done. So the idea about a creditor's claim is let's say you're going to get a million dollars from your mom's trust and you say, but I also loaned her a bunch of money and she owes me $50,000. So I'm going to file a creditor's claim for the $50,000. So that I can get a million plus 50,000 in yes. my mind. Yes. No, because what you've done in my mind is you trigger the no contest clause. You forfeited the million. You might get the 50 if you can prove it up. <laughs> But in that case, you're going to let the 50 walk and you're going to take the million. Yeah. Yeah. Might I suggest you not file the creditor's claim? <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a pretty harsh result. But that, it's really important that people pay attention to this stuff because, and there's two sides of this. Again, if you're creating a trust, do you as a trust creator want to create a situation where none of your beneficiaries can bring a creditor's claim if they're owed money? Now, for me, if, if I borrowed money from a child, I'd kind of feel like they should get paid back on top of whatever their share is. Why not? Right. Um, so if I have a trust that has this provision in it, I'm precluding them from doing that, and I may not even know it. 
I may have no clue about That's it. That's right. Now I could add a different provision where I said, hey, I borrowed $50,000 from my son. I want him to get that plus you know, his share. And that way I don't have to worry about the no contest clause because it's part of the trust provisions themselves. But that's, uh, again, it's something that people don't realize. So they put these provisions in their trust without realizing what the implication is. Let's talk about where no contest clauses do not apply whatsoever. Because what's the number one area that people call us up and they say, I want to take a certain action, but I've been told that if I do, I'll be disinherited. Well, generally, it's where the trustee is refusing to make a trust distribution to them that's required under the trust terms. Or account. Or account. And again, I don't need trustee, I don't need beneficiaries calling me, explaining to me how they can't compel this trustee to make a rightful distribution under the trust terms because there's a no contest clause. Okay, the no contest clause is going to apply in any type of administration aspect of what the trustee is supposed to do under the trust terms. No, not ever, not now, not ever. You can challenge their management, you can challenge their investment, you can challenge the sale of assets, you can challenge the distribution of assets. And what do trustees say to beneficiaries when they're in charge and they say, if you challenge anything I do in this trust, guess what? You'll be disinherited. There's a no contest no clause. Contest okay, clause. so everyone's confused on this. Right. Because, well, and naturally, I mean, I don't know if trustees may honestly think that the no contest clause means that you can't question their decisions, or they may just say that to try and intimidate beneficiaries, I don't know, or a little bit of both. But it doesn't matter. You, a no contest clause will never be enforced against a beneficiary who's questioning the management of the trust by the trustee. It does not apply to that. You can challenge the trustee's decision making. Even try to actions, remove them as trustee. Even remove them as trustee. If they... If, if the removal is based on their actions and their breach of trust, you can remove them all day long. You're never going to trigger the no contest clause. It's not going to happen. It's not even an analysis. It's not an issue. We don't need to talk about it. I agree with you 100%. We button that one up? We button that one up. <laughs> I think we, we learned two things there, that anytime you're challenging the trustee for failing to follow the trust terms, you're not going to trigger the no contest clause. And you and I don't need trust beneficiaries calling us and educating us on no contest clauses. Just watch this video and you'll know. <laughs> but if you're challenging the validity of the trust document, that's when you have a problem. That's a different story because you're saying story. I should have gotten more. Anytime you're saying I want more money, that's a triggering event. And you need to ask yourself, do I have probable cause to bring that action? Right, exactly. Now, one last thing I'll add, and then I think we should uh, wind it up today, but uh, you found an interesting new appellate uh, decision Oh, I guess there's a couple questions too, uh, that uh, talk about no contest clauses when somebody is responding to a trust contest. And maybe you could just give us a snippet of that. Yeah, this is key. And I wish I would have brought the case site with, into the room with me. I forget the case site. And I believe it was Tyler versus Key. Brand new appellate case that says that if you defend against a trust contest, so you're the defending party trying to preserve an amendment. And if you lose that defense of the amendment, you could be disinherited under a no contest clause because you're filing a pleading in court that's a responsive pleading that's trying to uphold the document that ultimately is deemed to be invalid. That's huge. That's a huge development in this area. It's not something that was on any practitioner's radar uh, probably before this case that I'm aware of. I think we all thought only people bringing, initiating uh, trust contests were at risk. And now people defending against trust contests could also be at risk. This is a big, big deal. And we'll probably be talking about it in a separate episode eventually because it's, it's big enough where we actually have to address it. But I'm glad you at least brought it up for now. Okay. So, Do we have any other questions? We do. We have two questions on Facebook. The first one is, 
my father passed away and his wife isn't talking to me or isn't accessible. How do I find out if he left me anything? That's a tough one. And it's tough because you don't want to upset mom if you if she has the full ability to amend the entire trust, which we talked about earlier. Yeah, because you'll be disinherited. In she will disinherit you. But on the other hand, if you if there's a mandatory bypass trust funding, well then you, you want to know about be safe. So the way I we don't know the situation in this case, and we're not giving legal advice, but. It seems to me that I would want, to, for, if this was my own issue, I would look at mom and say, how long do I think mom is going to live? If mom is in the hospital and on death's door, I'm not going to say anything. And in fact, I'm going to come by and visit her and bring her flowers and a card. But if I find out that mom's going to live the next 60 years, I think at some point you can tactfully write a nice letter asking for a copy of the trust, which you're entitled to. And, and truthfully, you also could file a petition in court demanding a copy of the trust. But as Stuart said, the minute you do that, you're going to be disinherited if there's a revocation or amendment provision because, you know, the spouse isn't going to appreciate that you're suing her in court. Unless but, there's a bypass. And if there's a bypass, then you might be able to safeguard your assets there. Yeah, but the problem is, is you won't know that until you file the petition and then you get a copy of the document and then you see one way or the other. So I would, I would agree with you that either bide your time or you can take court action, but you're taking a risk there. Now, it could be that you know that you've already been disinherited you just want to confirm that whether there's a bypass trust, then well, you might as well just file in court and ask the court to order a stepmom to hand over a copy of the trust and see well, what's or, in there. You know, you can also gently ask stepmom for a copy. It's generally not successful, but you can gently do that before filing. But I will say that we hear this question time and again, and it's it's. I'm sorry, whoever's going through this, it's a frustrating position to be in. You're gonna to have to pick your poison, either wait or actually go and, and ask that mom, hey, would you mind giving me a copy of the trust? Again, very tactfully, maybe she's willing to provide you a copy of it. And if not, go to court, but again, you're picking your poison there. Yeah. What's next, Kayla? The last question is, how much, or how long should it take to get a dispersal? Good question. <laughs> this is a beneficiary question we get all the time as well, and, and Keith, this is somebody that has uh, parents have passed away and it's been a year has gone by the trustee rarely updates them on what's going on they're frustrated how can you give a guideline to beneficiaries as to when they should expect to receive a, a distribution under a california trust well california says that you have to make a distribution within a reasonable amount of time but there's no black and white rule but i can tell you that if it's a simple estate and you don't have to sell anything you're not selling real property you should be getting something i would say within six to eight months at the latest if it's a complex estate where you have to deal with litigation or sell property, it might take 18 to 24 months. Um, but you can also ask for a preliminary distribution. It's not all or nothing. There's no reason why you should have to wait, you know, two years to get your anything from the trust. The trustee has the ability to distribute preliminarily at least some of the assets. So I would say that at a minimum, uh, you should either receive a distribution within you know six to eight months or the trustee should be telling you what the plan for distribution is within that time frame. So if the plan is, well, we have to sell this real property, and once it's sold, then we can distribute X amount, but we're going to keep some money in reserve, at least you know. So if you're not being told when the, what the plan of distribution is, and you're not receiving distributions, and you're entitled to an outright distribution, it's probably time to write a letter and then go to court. And the court action would be a petition for instructions to order a distribution. Uh, from the trust and maybe even remove the trustee depending on the circumstances. But, you know, you shouldn't have to wait too long. I mean, if, you, if you've waited more than 18 months and you have no clue what's going on, 
that's a huge problem. And we have some cases where people have waited three years and they still haven't received a penny from the trust. And I'm scratching my head thinking, how could that be possible? Right. That's way too long. It's a long time. Way too long. Yep. That all the questions, Kayla? Well, I want to thank everybody for participating on Facebook and sending us in questions. At the end of this broadcast, you can watch a recorded version of it on both Facebook and YouTube, where it will uh, remain forever and ever. And you can also get an audio-only version on either iTunes or the Stand Fight Win podcast on Podbean. So thank you very much, uh, Kayla, for your help. Thank you, Manisha, who's never on camera, but she's here as well, our, our marketing guru, for your help. And thank you, Stuart. Well, thank you, Keith. It's been a pleasure as always. I can't wait till next week. All right. We'll see you next time. Right. Thank you.